everyone. Welcome back to the Leadership Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the social responsibility of business and we which leaders are stepping in it and which leaders are getting it right. And oof, we've got some things to talk about today, Adriel. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm okay. I think we say that every week. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes just surviving is enough. It is. It is. That's how I'm feeling right now, um, which is a little ironic considering it's mental health awareness month still but here we are oh, here i feel that i feel are. that yeah well we um speaking of mental health there's been many things in the news taxing mine um that we can just briefly talk about because we've got so much to talk about today but yeah we've got oh god montana we we stipulated that montana was on the verge of banning tiktok they finally mm-hmm. did it this week it passed it's a thing it, it's a thing, but it's already getting challenged in court. So we'll mm-hmm. see how long that actually stands up. Definitely. Speaking of, of social media, Facebook was was fined a huge sum in Europe. $1.3 billion record-breaking fine in Europe for data transfers. Mm-hmm. And so will this actually, you know, change any behavior? I don't know. I mean, that's that's bigger than I've seen Facebook get fined in the past. Definitely. So maybe we'll finally, that'll... I think I think the it was meant to send a signal, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in other social media news, Section Two Thirty ended up being uh, surviving Supreme Court challenge. So for now, social media companies have the same shield. Yeah. So um, whether or not that's a good thing, I think kind of depends on your perspective on Section Two Thirty, right? Mm-hmm. Which we covered a few weeks ago. But for now, it's still still around. We'll I mean, that's happens. that's only the news in social media. No, it's not. <laughs> and I'm wait, there's more. List. There's more. <laughs> um, did you see this nonsense about a verified Twitter account sharing fake images of an explosion near the Pentagon? I did. And I saw the image and I was like, wait, what's going on? And then shortly after, there was news that that was an AI generated image. Yeah. And... So you've got, we talk. I mean... Oh, God, all these like things we've been talking about for weeks crashing mm-hmm. into each other in this story. You've got AI-generated imagery combined with this misinformation ecosystem that Twitter has created by dismantling its trust and safety team, allowing anyone to be verified. Right. Like, these stories are going to keep happening. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, you can now, like it's almost like they're crowdsourcing the safety and control team. So you can react to a tweet to be like, oh, this is misinformation. But I've seen even those little tags be incorrect on stories. And yeah, that is terrifying. You can't trust that this is we're relearning the the lessons of trust and safety on social media that we've known for the last 10 years is yeah. that some things can be crowdsourced and some things can't. You can't. The, the system can be gamed. Yes. And it can especially be gamed when people start going after specific figures or specific mm-hmm. stories. They can just start labeling whatever they want misinformation. Yeah. Journalists have been screaming this from the rooftops for, for years now. Years. years. And now years. we're starting to see what we're starting to see the results of, of a failure from a lot of leaders of organizations that have chosen to, you know, go the crowdsourcing route. It's just so frustrating because we've yeah. known that we've learned that we're like relearning the same lessons. Yes. It's uh, like Elon. Where were you, Elon? When we were, <laughs> we've been talking about this. He was Ugh. building SpaceX, I guess. You know Tesla. where, no, you know where he was. He was supporting Ron DeSantis presidential campaign Ooh. because it came out that he is hosting a, an audio conversation with soon to be presidential, officially soon to be presidential <laughs> candidate Ron DeSantis on Twitter. I just. Do, he, it came. <laughs> he's he supported DeSantis before, kind of you know, in cer- certain uh, conversations. But do you think this is actually just a ploy to, to make Twitter more relevant? Um, I don't know that Twitter needs help being any more relevant at the moment, but possibly. I mean, possibly. it needs help at least like finding a business model. And oh well, that st- yes. <laughs> at, you know, right now their business model is still very much dependent on attention, mm-hmm. which they are starting to you know it's it's starting to dwindle like yeah. the musk effect is having a real real effect and i don't i just don't see how i mean again i'm trying to i'm trying to empathize because i am like in my political bubble i get mm-hmm. it but i i don't see how hosting ronda santis hosting tucker carlson 
is going to create the kind of brand safety that advertisers need to start bringing that revenue back. So maybe there's some long-term game we're not seeing here. Maybe. And I wonder if um, the new CEO, Linda Yaccarino, has any say in this or if she's still onboarding right now. I'm really curious to know what direction she's going to be pushing Twitter into. But we'll see. We will see. you got to think that it wouldn't, she wouldn't want it to be political, be seen to be political at all. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well. I mean. Only time will tell. I don't understand (laughs) it. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Uh, what else we got? All right. We got, I mean, so many things. Um, our friend, speaking of Ron DeSantis. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> on the verge of his uh, presidential announcement, we've got Disney finally being like, you know what? We're just going to pull the plug on a $1 billion development and 2,000 new jobs that we were about to move to Florida. If we're mm-hmm. going to put up with this bullshit, we're just not going to do it. Yep. And That was meant <laughs> this, to send a signal for sure. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. And this had been in the works for a long time. I, ha- yeah. I have friends that work for Disney. I was talking about, you know, their job being moved to Florida mm-hmm. two years ago. So they've been, they're pulling wow. the plug on something that has been in the works a long, long time. Wow. DeSantis is really on one. I mean, from the anti-DEI bill, which I think we talked about last week, which was signed into law last week. So now colleges and universities, public colleges and universities in Florida can't use federal or state funding for DEI efforts or initiatives. Um, right. He's also signed some bills for that are targeting trans rights, abortion. Like he is just... He's on one. And it's it's really frustrating as we see some of these bills go into law because it's like it's setting the precedent for what other governors can aim for. And we're seeing it in Texas with Abbott. He's doing similar things. And it's like having a snowball effect, even if DeSantis doesn't end up, you know, actually getting into that (laughs) that Republican presidential seat, which I, I don't know. I. I don't know which is yeah. worse, him or Trump, but it's it's terrifying. It's all very terrifying. Um, I was recently asked about that uh, mental exercise of which would you rather have, DeSantis <laughs> or Trump, and I I don't. Uh, it oh. broke my brain a little bit. I don't don't really want to go there. Get somebody else to do it, please. <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you. Oh God. Um, well, in brand news this week, and mm-hmm. in company leadership news, there's been some really strange and somewhat discouraging uh developments one is target pulled some pride collection items after some threats to employees did you mm-hmm. see this story i did i did good uh, move bad move um i don't know enough about target to say but my my gut reaction just from reading the article is that it wasn't a good move you already have rolled out these items to celebrate pride month and it's like we're kind of caving in to people that to to conservative folks who are pushing back against transgender issues for the most part um and I don't know. It's it's kind of giving me Bud Light vibes. <laughs> you're backtracking because you're afraid of, I guess, losing customers or even support. I don't know what's going on or how Target gets continues to to thrive. Maybe there are yeah. some conservative leaders that support the organization, but I, I I don't see it as a good move at all. Especially considering all of the again that what we just talked about all of the bills and potential laws that might be passing that are taking away trans rights and other rights from the lgbtqia community so it doesn't look good to me doesn't look it's not a good look i mean i i get the sense like wanting to protect your employees is a good instinct right but is that the Um, way well, I just what what I worry about is if you start responding to these kinds of um, you know threats, mm-hmm. at what point do they not see this as an effective tactic and they just start threatening anyone who doesn't believe the same cultural things that they do or like sees a company as too progressive or sees a company as too mm-hmm. you know what I mean like yeah. So I this is a hard one because um, you know threats to personal safety should be taken seriously and yeah. employees are going to want you to take them seriously, mm-hmm. but. I just, I hate the idea that someone can, you know, that someone can cause someone to feel like their personal safety is threatened over a cultural issue right. and and use that kind of cudgel to like force a company into a somewhat, you know, into a, uh, I was going to say into a controversial decision, I guess you could argue it's out of a controversial decision, but 
whatever. I just don't. It doesn't make me feel great. I don't. I don't love no. the the direction of this. You know. No, exactly. And Target has been selling these items in in support of Pride Month for a very long time now. Very, yeah, forever. Um, and you know, I think one of the things that I've loved is that they've really thought about you know the products. So, like for example, they have a what they call a tuck friendly swimsuit for trans individuals that have not yet had gender affirming operations, right? right? And that is such an uh, uh, an innovative move for a company at Target's level and size. And so, to backtrack on something like that and to pull items as your way of supporting and protecting your employees, I just it just doesn't add up to me. Yeah, this it's is unfortunate. Tough. Speaking of Bud Light, um, they're still in the news. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's not going great. I mean, um, sales continue to plummet. It's Uh just there. It's it's having a long tail effect in a way that these consumer boycotts usually don't have. Right. And I think I think it speaks to how how honestly disconnected that campaign originally was from their target market. Right. And we talked about this a little bit when we were talking about this original story. Whether or not they should have made a partnership with Dylan Mulvaney, whether or not that was a a business decision, a right business decision, to me is a separate issue than how they were supposed to react to the backlash. Exactly. Because what you're seeing now is you're seeing not only they losing their core demographic, but there are gay friendly and transgender friendly bars now that are refusing to sell Bud Light. Like they they're getting the backlash from both ends. Right. And that that's not great. Nope. (laughs) So. Was it a smart business decision to do, go into that partnership? I think you could make an argument that they did not align with their core demographic or their core market and that sure. it wasn't a smart business decision. But once you make it, once you're out publicly, and this is this is kind of where my original head went with Target, like once you take a position, walking back from that position is never a good look for on lots of fronts. Um, right. So, Especially right is, now. Like... Yeah, it's, it's not a good move. We're, I, we keep talking about this idea of like a culture war within the DEI space. And, you know, it, it's tough. There are so many issues that we're we're going back and forth about right now. And the issues that are relevant to the trans community, the LGBTQIA community are at the forefront right now, unfortunately. And so it doesn't surprise me. But, it, you know, here we are. Yeah. Here we are. Exactly. That's that's one of the reasons why um, you know Target and all of these companies are being targeted, targeted mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, um, more so than they have been in the past about things they've been talking about for years. Because right. we are in this hotbed cultural moment around transgender issues, and of course that is starting to bleed into the LGBTQ community. Yes, and because this is not a nuanced conversation. We are not. We do not tend to have nuanced conversations as a body public. We tend to just relate things to each other. Yes. Right? Yes, very much so. Anyway, but from a from a brand leadership standpoint, I just want to reemphasize, at some point you have to decide what you stand for as a company and as a brand mm-hmm. and, and have values that you express no matter the political moment. Right. Right? I'm not saying what those values should be. I think that's... Again, up for you to decide. I obviously have opinions, but mm-hmm. I think that you have to do that internal work or else you become a, like seen as this wishy-washy, we don't even know what we stand for. Right. And then the minute you get backlash, you start pulling back. Like, it's got to be about principles, not politics. Yeah. And Leave I, you the know politics one thing, out of it. Absolutely. And I think one thing that a lot of organizations fail to do and have failed to do, especially right now, are revisiting those values because change is inevitable. And so your values may or may not align to the direction that you want your organization or company to go in now. And so you leaders need to keep revisiting. I I can't specify the cadence. Maybe it's every year, maybe it's every quarter, depending on how rapidly things are shifting within your industry. But it is so necessary to revisit those values and make sure that they are still relevant because everything you do, to your point, should be rolling up into those. Your decisions should be connected to those values. And if they're not, you're probably going to end up like Target and Bud Light. <laughs> right. I mean, I think to, to me, values are something that shouldn't change that often. Like these, sure. these should be like foundational things. But we do need to think about how they get expressed. Like it can't be just we we are committed to inclusion. It's like you can't just throw out the buzzwords and then not think about, okay, well, in scenario A, sure. how does that how does that play out? But some organizations, B, how does that play out? 
Yeah, I'm working with a client. They haven't revisited their values in 10 years. And I mean, we we had a conversation yesterday about them and the, the individual words or terms are still roughly the same, but how they're talking about them, to your point, have changed pretty significantly. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's really important for leaders to just realign. I mean, you have new people coming into the organization. And if you ask a lot of leaders within organizations, half of them can't even let, tell you what their values are for the company. They have that's to go look it yeah, up. Right. <laughs> like, that is a yeah. problem. <laughs> yeah, that's part, the part of the problem is we some many, many companies have just not done that kind of foundational work ever. Right. Exactly. Anyway, um, so we'll get we'll give a separate uh, lecture on that later. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you and I both care a lot about, and I think I think it's at the root of a lot of these kinds of stories. Um, yep. Well, speaking of, I, it's been a big week of DEI news. Um, yes. Uber suspended its chief diversity officer over some controversial trainings mm-hmm. and workshops that that she did. Did you were you following this story? I did. Yeah, there. <laughs> I couldn't miss it. It was right on my I LinkedIn say, feed many to, many you times. You had to be digging in on this one. <laughs> yeah, and folks have asked me for my thoughts about it. Um, yeah, so she basically created this series called "Don't Call Me Karen," and it, they were basically a series from my understanding of workshops to kind of empathize with white women um and there was some backlash from black and brown employees who reached out and they were like we are not feeling this this is not supporting our dei efforts and so now we're at this place where her her job is perhaps in jeopardy um You know, I have mixed feelings about this whole like canceling people, people losing their jobs over things like this. How do we learn? How do how do people learn if our our gut reaction is just cancel culture? You're fired. We're letting you go. Right. Um, I don't know. (laughs) Oh, this is I mean, what a good question, because I think you could make an argument that lots of people need the space to try things and get them wrong and mm-hmm. that the the us being puritanical about our ideology is part of the problem because people feel like they can't try right 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 um but she was also in a leadership position she's yeah. supposed to be the subject matter expert in this yep. so what what went wrong here can you can you walk people through the story like what what is wrong about sympathizing with the karens of the world I mean, <laughs> we're we're when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, we're really trying to support historically marginalized individuals and groups, folks that have been historically oppressed. And a lot of people are looking for DEI leaders to lean into that and provide support. I think there's opportunity to invite all voices and perspectives, but there's plenty of visibility for white women. Yeah. There just I mean, is. Uh- Plain devil's advocate, I think the argument for it would be, you know, the feminist, like, women's rights kind of angle, right? I'm assuming that's what she was going for. Perhaps. Uh, It's still unclear. That part I haven't really found. And it's possible that, you know, there were people that reached out to her and they're like, well, what about us? There's never any conversations for white women, right? Right. And so it's very possible that she was trying to find some balance there. Um, But... The name alone, Don't Call Me Karen, was not the right move. Sure, it's clickbaitish and it, it draws attention, yeah. but for internal work at Uber, not the right move. Um, yeah. and it, it's pretty unfortunate. I mean, this person has a, quite a bit of experience in the DEI space, but again, we're human and people make mistakes. So I again, I don't know if it's worth suspending or even firing her. Uh, suspending, sure, as you kind of figure out, but firing her, I'm not sure if that's going to be the result. Um but a lot of it, from what I read, it felt like they were lectures, and so they weren't even really discussions. Oh, interesting. Um, and so that is that is dangerous territory in general when you're talking about DEI. Um, and you know, from my standpoint, I even dislike the concept of DEI trainings. I like using workshops because I want it to be interactive. I want people to come into my sessions and say, I don't even agree with you and push back. Go ahead, let's have a conversation. That is the whole point. I'm not here to change your mind. I'm just here to introduce new concepts to you and get you to consider a different perspective, right? And so I think that was one of the missteps here is that it was, these were like Zoom lecture sessions where, um, you know, people almost felt like they were being scolded and mm. by people i mean there was a black woman in particular and it was over zoom that's see that's even yeah. a tough format to begin with 
Yeah, so it's just there were a lot of missteps there. Um, I'm going to keep following the story to see what's going on. But uh, yeah, the, the again, the name alone was not good. The, the approach and it was a series. It wasn't just like a one time session. There were a few of them. So can we take a quick side note? And I just want to note, like, where do you when you're doing these DEI workshops, sure. where have you seen them gone go wrong? Because I do feel like the when I've heard of a diversity leader kind of stepping in it. Yeah. It usually is because they tried to open some kind of dialogue over some kind of hard emotional issue and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it just devolves into something that, you know, in, ends up creating more dissonance in the organization. Sure. And I don't, you know, I never, I'm always looking at it on the surface, so I never know exactly where it went wrong. But like yeah. from your perspective, where does, where do those kinds of two-way street dialogues really go off the deep end? Oh, goodness. This should have been my deep dive today. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm not, I won't go into all the things, but I'll tell you the things that happen very commonly, right? You have DEI leaders who come in to have these discussions or these trainings, again, um, versus workshops. So they're very lecture-based. They're talking at mm. people, telling them this is how you should approach this thing versus offering tools and taking asking people to consider how they could perhaps integrate them into their daily lives. Another issue is that there's often a blame approach where it's like white people are bad and this is why we're here. Like as soon as you do that, like anything that is going to cause someone to shut down that has that's tied to their identity is not good. Um, mm. And so people immediately have this psychological threat and they shut down and they stop listening. And so you don't get anywhere with your discussions. And so instead of taking this approach that is blaming individual people, it's more so talking about what are the current issues? How did we get here and helping people understand them from a much broader perspective and allowing people to share their thoughts, right? Like, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had about equity and, you know, the difference between equity and equality. And people are like, well, I see all people as the same. I don't see color. Right. I don't and see I have color. to, yeah. I have to slow down and explain the implications of saying I don't see color. And almost always there's this, wow, I never thought about it that way response. And so you're, you should be there to help people really understand versus attack them in trying to help them understand. Because again, psychology 101, people are going to shut down. And so there's a need for DEI practitioners often to go beyond just thinking about their own identity and the sort of, I'm going to point a finger and wag at you and berate you kind yeah. of approach. And there needs to be more understanding of psychological safety, which I'm going to talk about more later today. That is my deep dive. <laughs> um, and just psychology in general and how to actually interact with people. Um, there's, there's so many different approaches that you can take to it. And also a lot of DEI folks fail to go through um, learning about like conflict resolution. Again, yeah. tons of frameworks for that, but that is something that is a skill that you need going into these conversations too. So 100% because yeah. sometimes it gets out of control. And oh, yeah, it's not based on you what something you did. It's based on the people in the room. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, all right, let's put a pin in that because I do yes. want to I have so many more <laughs> questions, but we're going to save it for your deep dive. Yes. Um, but I should say just in general, there was research that came out from Edelman this week saying mm -hmm. six in 10 want employers to directly address and call out racism in the mm. workplace. So this is not like the need for people with the, this kind of expertise is not going to go away yes. despite the trends of, you know, rolling back people working in this space or like oh, laying yeah. off DEI teams. This yeah. is still going to be an important conversation. We still need to resource against it. We still need people who can do conflict resolution and the careful nuanced discussions of white privilege that you were just talking about yeah. in a workplace environment. It's tough. Absolutely. All right. What do you, you gave us a little preview of your deep dive. <laughs> tell, us, tell us what you're bringing to us this week. Yeah, there was an incredible article that came out, uh, I believe, two days ago, um, and it's titled Creating Psychological Safety for Black Women at Your Company. And it's by uh, two women, Agatha Agbenobi and T. Viva Asmalash. And they um, went into detail about some of the approaches that organizations can take to better support um, black women in the workplace. But I think, you know, I just want to talk about psychological safety in general and the importance of it and why we need leaders to lean into it really heavily right now. I mean, all the research is pointing to this. All of the anecdotes are pointing to this. And so um, it, I, I just want to make sure that people it's at the forefront of people's minds, especially when they're thinking about diversity, equity and inclusion. 
you cannot maintain a diverse workplace, you cannot maintain an equitable workplace, and you cannot foster inclusion, which is an outcome, without the base being psychological safety. So that's what we're talking uh, about. <laughs> uh, Dave, can you insert a mic drop sound at the end of that? Because I feel like that's what... I have such a good... I feel like we need to just stop the podcast there. there we no, go. we'll dig into it. Yes. Um, I'm bringing a conversation I want to have about employment. So... Let me let me step back. This is a this is a fascinating story to me, and we've been talking about for a long time mm-hmm. how people are you know quiet quitting, what what people will stand for in terms of creating boundaries at work, um, how people are kind of reassessing the role of work in their life and wanting to create a portfolio of things that give meaning, and work is just one of them, and we're not like you know gonna put up with this hustle culture anymore. Sure. On the other side of that. <laughs> We have the overemployed. Yes. The people who are taking advantage of a remote work environment to actually just apply for and accept multiple jobs mm-hmm. that in theory overlap and yep. you know in terms of their time commitment and they're using things like AI, ChatGPT, whatever to do those jobs to basically automate and make their jobs a little bit more efficient so mm-hmm. that they can have these overlap overlapping jobs but yep. some of these stories are wild about people taking three four full-time in theory mm-hmm. jobs at the same time and yeah. i want to talk about the ethics around this like is oh. this okay but i also want to talk about it from an employer standpoint if you are employing someone and saying this is a full-time job but they can actually get that job done in 20 hours not 40 Mm-hmm. Is it okay for you to say no? We still want that other twenty hours. Ooh, and how do all you right. control that? <laughs> exactly, and how do you have this ability to how you to control it without doing all the like micromanaging surveillance things that we have talked about not being good? <laughs> yeah. All right, let's right. get into it. Let's keep going on this psychological safety for black women story first, because yeah. I feel like I, I have about a thousand questions that I don't want to <laughs> lose on this story. So why don't you why don't you walk us through it? Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of historical and we can call it sociocultural context. I think that's how they worded it in this article around just black women in the workplace and how difficult it can be to establish psychological safety. And just for us to level set, when we're talking about psychological safety, what we're talking about is being able to take interpersonal risks. Um, And so psychological safety is something that happens within a group. Often people conflate trust and psychological safety. Trust is an element of psychological Mm. safety. So when we're talking about trust, it's more so of a one on one thing like do i trust caleb does caleb trust me um do i trust dave our producer does dave trust me right and then when we're talking about psychological safety it's with amongst the three of us is there that that safety to take interpersonal risk can i present a contrarian point of view can i uh admit to a mistake that i made an error and feel like i'm not going to be retaliated against shamed made to feel humiliated, et cetera, right? That's psychological safety. And so that's what we're trying to create within the workplace because that allows for a diverse mix of people to work well together, um, to be more innovative, to be more productive, efficient, et cetera. That allows us to create equity where there's fairness. And then ultimately we can foster inclusion where people feel included, have a sense of belonging, right? And we Um, should say that this isn't just for marginalized communities. No, this is for everyone. There is so much research out there about how psychological safety is the key to team dynamics and innovation. I remember there was a a longitudinal study done at Google a few years back on Mm -hmm. this. And the teams that where people felt comfortable being vulnerable were so Mm -hmm. much more effective than the teams who, who didn't have that same psychological safety. Yep. Uh, I think that study is like rework or RE colon work. I use that study a lot. <laughs> it's it's a great one. Yeah. Um, but psychological safety in that from that study that they did was the number one factor and it continues to be. Um, Amy Edmondson is a researcher and professor who has, she actually coined the term psychological safety. And I really respect her work because she centers it often around um, identity. And so understanding that your identity or intersection of identities, because we all have various identities, 
um, directly correlate and impact how much psychological safety you will experience and mm. if it'll be challenging, more challenging for you or I to experience or to find a sense of psychological safety. And so this particular study is really thinking about black women in the workplace and how it's so necessary to actually tailor your, you know, the needs of black women to, to tailor the, your approach to to creating psychological safety for black women based on their needs and their historical experiences. Again, this applies to all groups, right? But the point is that different groups, different identities require different things. Um, and yeah. unfortunately, there hasn't been a lot of research around supporting black women in the workplace. And so that's why I love this this report in the study so much. Um, we'll be sure to add some info in the, the description so people can check it out. But there are a number of things that leaders can be doing. Um, one of the things we talked about we were just talking about like revisiting values and things like that but revisiting your dei statement and your commitments like what are they they're going to change over time they're not going to remain the same um making sure that leaders and when i say leaders i'm talking about people leaders and managers understand the historical context and experiences of marginalized folks again in this case of black women um, and knowing that there's a lot of trauma that we carry around work um, one of the reasons why I decided to start working for myself was because of workplace trauma. Like there were so mm. many times when my psychological safety was directly threatened by the person managing me that I was just sick of it. I was like, I, I can't keep doing this. Um, wow. And so just being mindful of that. And there's um, there are so many stories out there to help people understand, you know, the experiences of black women and how psychological safety is often threatened. And so it's really important to understand that because that is going to allow managers, people, leaders to better empathize and then figure out how to create a sense of psychological safety um, and realize that it's not just about training and educating individuals. It's also about looking at your systems and your processes that are in place and understanding if and how they impact different types of people. Because most workplaces were designed historically for cisgender, heterosexual white men. 100%. So yeah. if you haven't taken the time to revisit your workplace culture, the environment, and when I say culture, I'm talking about things like how are decisions made? How do we resolve conflict? Um, you know, how do we, you know, create, how do we collaborate? Like all of those parts of workplace culture, um, you have to constantly be looking at them to see if they are equitable and if they are, are fitting to support a diverse mix of people. So there are some other tips and tricks that people can employ and, uh, employ and think about, you know, to support not only black women again, but just all people to create psychological safety. But again, to your point, studies show over and over again that we need psychological safety to foster inclusive, productive teams. So I'll pause there. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I mean, there's so much. I, I just want to like replay that same section and then like have leaders out there hear it again, because I do think it is underappreciated mm -hmm. how much trauma black women especially are bringing into the workplace on the first day yeah you know like that's yeah. what i really want to hear leaders especially white leaders especially white male leaders like mm -hmm. me and un understand is that like you are you are approaching the idea of creating psychological safety from a deficit on day one and right. that's nothing that you in particular did it's about like existing in society and like you said like existing in work environments that were not necessarily created in order to create that safety in general so right. like you have to you have to work extra hard to create that safety exactly. Um, exactly and and to understand that experience as best you can you know not not being a part of that marginalized community and it's tough it is um it's tough because you're doing everything else you're trying to do as a leader right and you're mm -hmm. you're especially if you've created an environment that works for most people you know you're like i don't i don't understand it doesn't work for doesn't work for you it's working for the other 10 people you know on your team why isn't why isn't it working for you right. and that is very hard thing for leaders to wrap their head around but it's super super important for creating those teams that are more diverse and more innovative and you know have those better business outcomes when you have a more um, diverse and inclusive team mm -hmm.
So in terms of things that people can be on the lookout for, there's there's actually a pretty uh, good read, which I've only read a few excerpts from so far, but it's by a woman named Minda Hart. And the book is called Right Within, How to Heal from Racial Trauma in the Workplace. And there are plenty of examples so that mm. people, leaders especially, that have not experienced this or are unsure of what to look out for can actually read through and understand what some of these experiences look like. Um, a lot of them are centered around microaggressions. I, I talk about some of the microaggressions I've experienced personally um, quite a bit, especially when I'm, you know, talking about that in workshops and when I'm coaching leaders. Um, things like, you know, I, I'll never forget. I walked into a meeting one time from with my team. I was on the HR people team. And because it's New York, the, the subways were delayed and I was late and I was like, great, I'm going to be the tardy black person. Wonderful. So I was already mm -hmm. stressed about that, of being perceived as, you know, the stereotypical late person. Um, and then I walk in and my boss literally stops the meeting and is like, oh, my God, your hair. And she reaches out and touches it in the middle of the meeting, in the middle of her talking. When I walked in, <sighs> stop the whole. Shit. There are people like dialed in on Zoom from clear across the, the globe. And everyone's just like, oh, yeah, OK. And it was it was just one of those humiliating moments. And if I could have turned the color of a beat, I would have <laughs> in that moment. And. I spent the rest of the day with people walking up to me at my desk because it was an open floor plan being like, oh, your hair is so great. I love it. I love it. And I'm like, I'm not here for my hair, number one. Number two, I hate that I had to be the center of attention. Um, at that point in my career, I just I wasn't as outgoing as I am now. Like I was more introverted in the workplace and it, it just was not a good feeling for me. And it almost made me not even want to switch up my hair, which I love to do. It's something that is a way that I express myself. I love changing my hair. And I, but I don't want it to be something that stops a meeting that has nothing to do with my appearance, right? Yeah. Um, so things like- My jaw like, dropped on the floor. That, that's, that's insane. <laughs> yeah. But it kind of goes back to what you were saying. I think it was last week, the week before when you said like the flip it principle, like would you do that to anyone else? Yeah, right. Walked in that room. And that I've never seen it happen any other time. Um, and I know other black women that have had similar experiences or people that touch them without permission. Um, you know, I, I had a manager one time who I thought I could trust, who I almost felt like I was becoming friends with, who told me to do something and apparently it wasn't the right thing. And so someone came to her and started pointing the finger at her and she was like, oh, Adrielle did it. And I'll, I'll never forget. I cried. I cried. I cried so much. And it broke me. And that was one. Of, again, these are all like experiences that have imprinted on me that led me to not want to work in for anyone <laughs> anymore. Like um, and to the point of your your deep dive that you're going in today. Uh, I, I'm juggling multiple jobs at this point, and I'd much rather do this than to be working for someone <laughs> else. Um, but there are these traumatic experiences that you live with that signal to you that you are other or that you are perhaps less than in some situations. Um, you know, the fact that this person was willing to throw me under the bus to save her jobs, to save her ass was just like, wow. And I thought, again, I thought we had built some trust up. Um, you know, and there have been other things like comments that have been been made in workplaces. I remember one of my managers was trying to praise me and was like, oh, yeah, Adriel's been slaving away on this project just without realizing oh. what was being said. Right. Um, and so those small things that, again, signal to you, we often call microaggressions death by a thousand paper cuts or mosquito bites. They add up and it creates yeah. this trauma. And so those are the things that black women experience. And we have studies that tell us that we experience them at a higher rate than any other marginalized group in the workplace. Um, and so those are the things that leaders need to be on the lookout for. So increasing your awareness around microaggressions is helpful. Reflecting. A lot of managers don't slow down to reflect on their past experiences and act. So thinking about past experiences where you were perhaps called out as a manager for not speaking up or if you were called out for just not intervening for something, what could you have done differently? Um, thinking about how you can leverage your position. So we're talking about power and privilege, which I know sometimes people hear and they cringe and they get defensive. But when we're talking about power and privilege, we're just talking about your, your sort of place. If we're talking about the workplace, your hierarchy and what abilities you have to influence decisions, right? So if you are in a position of management, what can you do to amplify the voices of black women and other marginalized individuals and groups or to just 
raise their concerns because a lot of times we get to a point where we're just sick and tired of being sick and tired and we don't want to say anything. I'd rather just work and be quiet and eventually find a new job than to keep fighting this fight or to keep speaking up and trying to tackle all of this on my own. So as a manager, as a leader, support people in those positions. If someone comes to you with something, believe them. Um, You know, sometimes we default to being like, oh, I know that person. They wouldn't say or do that. No, they didn't mean anything by that. Don't do that. (laughs) Please don't do that. Um, So they're all stepping it. It's not nobody is. No, nobody is free from the occasional you know microaggression without even realizing it yeah so like if somebody calls you out on it just take it as a learning opportunity exactly exactly um you know i have a friend that i misgender every now and then because i i've known them for eternity as she her and they now go by they them and i just correct myself and move on we both move on right yep. and so you learn over time to self-correct and you don't wait for other people to call you out on your stuff so yeah leaders people want to know that you're trying it. Yes. That's that. I think yes. that's the most important that's part, it. and it goes back to that, like, you know, uh, what people feel like they can't try because mm-hmm. they we haven't created the safety that it's okay to make mistakes and cancel um, culture. Go, yeah, and and goes back to what you're saying about like, should we fire someone for for making the mistake? Right. And the truth is that like we need the room to be able to try mm-hmm. so that people can correct us and we can learn. And it's okay to like create that environment of like constant learning and self-reflection. But as a leader, it is your responsibility more than anyone else's to try. Exactly. Because like you said, it's not, it shouldn't be on all the black women in our organization to stand up for the black women. Like we need need everyone else to do it. Yeah, exactly. Shameless plug. The Inclusive Leadership Journal will help you reflect on these things. (laughs) (laughs) So along those lines... What, what, you know, in terms of the Karen training and the chief diversity officer in that Uber story, like what would, what would you say is, you know, she was trying something. It didn't work out. It turns out maybe not the right decision. Yeah. Like what would be the right, like, um, I don't want to say consequence, but at least like outcome of that story in your mind. It's tough. I mean, I think they need to listen. And by they, I'm talking about the broader leadership team that has chosen to suspend this person. I think they need to reach out and listen to the concerns of the black and brown folks that reached out to them with these concerns. Um, It looks like she did not have the best response when they approached her about it. She said something about like, you know, sometimes you have to be pushed out of your own, I think, strategic ignorance or something like that. and. To tell that to a, a black person, a black woman, I no. <laughs> and so I think there needs to be some conversations had to understand where she is currently on her, in her journey. Is has this been a consistent thing, or was this like a one-off mm. situation where she just completely missed the mark and created this again? Don't call me Karen. A, a series of events. I'm not sure. Um, But based off of that, I think then you decide, is this an opportunity for this person to learn and to continue to grow here? Or is it time for this person to go because they're not aligned to our values and our vision for DEI within this space? So that's my take on it. I know that's not like a very black and white answer there, but. (laughs) But it shouldn't be, right? Like, I think you're right that the pattern of behavior really matters. um, Absolutely. Because we should be able to make you know, individual mistakes. But the question is, are we learning from those? Are we changing our behavior? I think that really, really matters. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe that's a good uh, bow to wrap on that one. Although, you know, again, there's so much to to unpack. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, actually, as a a segue into the next story, maybe I'd love to hear you say just like how a remote work environment impacts this creation of psychological safety both positively and negatively sure because i do think it makes it different Mm -hmm. well there have been a lot of reports and studies um and done or conducted with a lot of black employees black women specifically and a lot of them have expressed that they've actually enjoyed working remotely and being able to sort of have that layer of protection of being in your home environment or you know mm-hmm. if you're a digital nomad that as well but you're choosing the environment that you're working from you're choosing if your camera is on or not um, and so that that works very well for marginalized people they're able to avoid a lot of the microaggressions that historically they had experienced the downside though i think is you know 
I can't remember the exact number, but like some 90% of our communication is often nonverbal. <laughs> right, and so right. if you don't have that visual element of seeing someone on screen, or if you don't have those opportunities where you get to interact with someone, there's still a level and interact with someone in person, there's still this level of mystery. And so that can make it a little difficult to establish trust, which is a key component of developing psychological safety. So six in one hand, half dozen in the other. Hard to right. say. Right, right, right. Um, so yeah. Mixed bag. Yeah. I mean, I did, I had read similar things that you were talking about, about um, how the experience of microaggressions are lessened when we are <laughs> in a remote work environment and you're not around. Yeah. What could be a very, you know, like you said, a culture that has has always been one thing, like mm-hmm. made for cisgender white men. Right. All of a sudden, in a remote work environment, you're outside of that culture, and the culture is all digital. Right. And you don't feel the like same kind of pressure that we unintentionally put on each other to kind of you know be like each other essentially. Right. Um, no one's going to call you out about your hair when you don't have a camera on on Zoom, right? Right. <laughs> exactly. Like exactly. Like I, I, yeah. And one of the I'll add one more thing. I do think one of the pros is that. When microaggressions do happen in this remote workforce environment, it gives you a little bit more time to think about how to react or how to to, to disrupt them. Um, whereas when we're in person, it's like, do I react right now? What do I say? Oh, my God, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, and yeah. so there's a little bit of a delay often, which, you know, creates an opportunity for us to speak yeah. up. So there's yeah, that. That's interesting. Well, let's, let's get into the, the next deep dive because this is related and, yes. and talk about people who are overemployed. And now, now I'm imagining like overemployed with a bunch of remote work and like trying to deal with microaggressions in several different places, like which 10 is ten different screens at yeah, your desk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds stressful. But yeah. Let's let's talk in general. Like, it just seems like a very unique post-pandemic ability to do this because mm-hmm. of how many jobs have gone remote. Um, I think that you know historically, I've know I've known some developers who have done this, for example, because yeah. a lot of development jobs have been remote pre-pandemic. Um, and a lot of, again, if you're really great developers, a lot of that shit can be automated. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so it's easier to take on like a lot of these roles when the people who are hiring you don't really understand the ins and outs of the role. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like when you know you need something, but you aren't actually, you've never done it yourself. Sure. So you don't know how long it takes. Sure. So you're kind of making a guess that, oh, we need a full-time person. Right. Well, actually those responsibilities, if you know what you're doing, can be done in 10, 10 hours, 20 hours a week. Mm-hmm. So my question is, from a from an employee side, I think it's it's sketchy to not let everyone know the car. You know what I mean? Like not not communicate. I think the uh, entire portfolio of things that you are doing, if you've committed to being a full time job, if it's not like specific to, um, you know, it's saying like we want you forty hours a week or whatever. Sure. I don't. You know, it doesn't matter to me. But I I think that there's a little bit of of sketchiness to not to like taking on multiple supposedly full-time jobs no you you're giving me a skeptical look so i want to know i want to know what you think about this i mean i feel like if there's a conflict of interest then sure but if like you're working for pepsi and coke yeah like why do i need to let you know it's almost like this why do you need to know my business (laughs) kind of thing like i if i'm getting if there's no conflict of interest both jobs are getting done I'm available when necessary. Mm. This is a, this is a good I point of debate because I don't, I, I think that in general, I agree with you, except that if it's in the job description that we're giving you a certain amount of hours a week, that's where, that's where it like rubs me a little bit of the wrong way. Sure. If you're requiring that I work those set amount of hours, Sure. But I know a lot of tech roles that don't specify hours. They say it's full time. That's fair. They don't say yeah. what full time is. Your full time could be 25, 30 hours. Someone else's could be 60, 65. That's fair. That's very fair. If it doesn't specify, I guess that that is a yeah. different story. And I think I, there's, I know. <laughs> there's is, also a lot to be said, weird. though, about you know how expensive living is right now. And the fact that people even feel the need to work multiple jobs. Oh, yeah, 100%. I get the desire to want to do it or like to, to like, 
you know, especially if you're doing jobs that pay, you know, 50, 60K, mm-hmm. you like scrap a couple of those together and suddenly you're in the, you know, 200K range and cost yeah. of living is, is dramatically different. Right. But I guess this is, let's unpack this because I'm trying to get at <laughs> yes. what is making me uncomfortable here. I'm thinking Please. about it from the employer side. Mm-hmm. If you're hiring someone in an, the expectation that they're in a full-time job and it turns out they're giving you 20 hours and still fulfilling all their project obligations, should you, as the employer, expect them to, I don't know, find extra productivity in those other 20 in terms of, like, making the company better or, like, extra kind of things on top of their responsibilities or not? I don't think so. Because, it again, if the job description is this and I'm doing that and that's what you've decided it's worth... That's a you problem and not a me problem. <laughs> That's how oh. I look at it. Oh. <laughs> like, I, why? No, I, I hear you. And yet my, my like, as especially like startup leader, like small company, I'm like, I want the people who are going to find ways to make my company better outside their job description. Like, those are the people I want to hire. Do you sure. know what I mean? Sure. And I mean, some people are still doing that, right? Like they're getting their job done in fewer hours. And as they're doing it, they're like, oh, you could, we could improve this. And they're calling that out, right? Let's say that is happening and they're making suggestions, but they're still only working, let's say 25 hours. Then they're adding on five more hours. Yeah. Do we still then try to get them to fulfill the remaining time? I don't Uh. know. Like, do they have an obligation to speak out that, hey, I'm not, I'm not at full capacity? Right. I don't know. Do they? I mean, I'm asking. I don't like, know. I, don't, and I, I mean, actually don't. I feel like that's a hard call. Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to say. And I think we're at such an interesting time where we're also talking a lot about pay equity and how much roles are worth. And, you know, some roles can leverage a lot of automation like ChatGPT. I, I think mm-hmm. the, the article we were looking at, it, someone said they're using ChatGPT for 80% of their role, which is like, Please teach me your ways. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I always I'm a little skeptical about that because I'm always like, I mean, it depends on the role, right? Yeah, like exactly. You, exactly. If you're a developer and you understand how to write really good prompts, I could definitely see it like taking sure. over a ton of your work. Um, right. If it needs a little bit more writing nuance, you know, like there's going to be a, a significant amount of editing involved at least. Right. But it's definitely going to be squeezing, you know, like productivity down and or um, making productivity better in a mm-hmm. lot for a lot of these different kinds of jobs. Yeah. And in a way that, again, the employer is not going to see necessarily if the employee knows what they're doing. Right. And it's scary because if people start revealing that they are completing a, a job in, let's say, 20 hours because they're using automation, but then you have someone else who has no clue how to use automation and it's taking them 45, 50 hours a week to get through the same stuff. How does that work? How, you know, from, to your point, like as an employer, how do I create equity with that situation? Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. We're in this like interesting dissonance between who knows how to be really efficient and automated and who doesn't mm-hmm. for certain specific roles. But I still go back to this, like, if you are the person who knows how to be super efficient, you're, you're like, that's a you problem is really ringing around in my brain, because why would you speak up and say, hey, I've got 20 extra hours this week that I could give to you my company that's going to pay me the same amount of money for those hours as they were going to pay me for 20 hours. Like the incentives are totally there to not do that. Right. Yeah, they are. I know someone that has two full time jobs, remote jobs. Um, and combined, they work about 40 hours and then they also still have a side hustle outside of that where they do creative work. So, <laughs> you know, and it works for them, but Good for them, that sounds exhausting. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think burnout is going to be inevitable in that situation. But, yeah, maybe you know. it kind of depends on, on how, what takes your brain power out of those yeah. other things. Right. And what takes your like emotional load too. Exactly. This but makes like, me think okay, about, so... yeah, no, go ahead. Oh no, finish your thought. Oh, I was just going to say, this makes me think about all of those um, recent articles where they were talking about employers like surveilling their employees. And it's like, how does that yeah. get into this as well? Um, that's a good segue, because that's what I wanted to talk oh, about is like, what's the employer's expectation here? Like, should you as the employer monitor? Like, I feel very uncomfortable with surveillance in general. Same, same. Um, you know, like I just, 
there's surveillance for the sake of productivity. Like I saw some really interesting software that was basically like tracking how how quickly are we responding to customers. Mm-hmm. So like looking at email turnaround time, for sure, example. Sure. That's different than who's logging on when. Are people actually spending time online when they should be? You know, like right. that kind of remote work surveillance, I get the instinct to that. But to me, that's a fear-driven instinct. And mm-hmm. we need to get to the place of being able to, speaking of creating trust, being able to trust our employees to do what they are supposed to do. If we can't entrust them to do that, that's a bigger issue to me than just are they logged on. Absolutely. I agree. So let's, let's assume that you are trusting your employees to do all the things that they said that, that are on their plate, to your point, mm-hmm. that are on their job description. Should you be uncomfortable as the employer to say, oh, Adriel's got the side hustle or Adriel's got this uh, other full-time job, but she's still doing what she said she was going to do for me. Right. Again, to me as the employer, it creates some dissonance, but I don't know that I have ground to stand on if you're still doing what you said that you were going to do for me. And that's what I asked you to do. So, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. fulfilling your duties. Now, where it does start to get uncomfortable and we l- run into some some weirdness is if I said, hey, we've got a new project coming in. Mm-hmm. You've told me you've got some extra capacity because mm-hmm. you're taking on this extra work. I need you to do this as part of, you know, your job. Yeah. And then it starts running to the hours of the other job. Right. And that's where it's, this is why the instinct is to not be necessarily upfront that you're doing this. Perhaps. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because you can't like say no to one job because the other job has demands. Right. And I I wonder how people are juggling that. I mean, my friend that has the two roles, they generally don't overlap, but there have been instances where someone's like trying to schedule a meeting and they already have a meeting for the other, That's what I'm saying. <laughs> the other exactly. Job. And so they're I like, mean, oh, I just can't do this. I don't know. You and I are like, we're both kind of in that entrepreneurial, like actual, like make our own schedules. And yeah. so we can schedule around those things. People kind of, there's an expectation, obviously, that we're going to do that. Right. But right. there's not when you're working multiple full-time jobs where people right. don't know anything about each other. It's you like, why are you free? <laughs> that to, yeah, exactly. You can only conceal that to a certain extent. Right. I don't well, know. This is I an guess interesting one. I'm gonna have to sit with this one over the next week. We may have to do a right? quick, like recap. This is why this is uh, <laughs> this has been such a fascinating story for me because have we landed on a it, don't ask, don't tell is the best mm. is the best approach, right? Yeah. Like employers, you don't want to be uncomfortable knowing this, and an employee, you're like you, you're, if you're making it work, you're making it work, and everyone's kind of happy in their ignorance. Yeah, I think most companies are probably not too stoked about this. I'd imagine. Uh, yeah i'd imagine I, I i absolutely that's why i'm saying even even me thinking about it as an employer's i, I get this internal dissonance but i'm trying to Im- unpack it for myself to know if it's coming yeah. from a an actual healthy place or if it's just coming from a this is the expectation we have set on the workplace for so long mm-hmm. do you know what i mean like one of those kind of societally societally did i just make that that word <laughs> socially constructed things that right. we're pushing up against that actually has no basis in how things should be it's just right. how they've always been right I'd, I'd be curious to see i hope someone's doing a study on this to just kind of you know pull some numbers on these overemployed folks to get a sense of what's going on and why they're yeah. doing it i mean they're doing i think they're doing it because they can yeah right well, like of if you can do it you can get away <laughs> with it you can make more money like i don't know yeah it's one of those like work Work tends to expand in the space that we give it, right? Right. But if you know. were if you were to be making more money with one of those roles and they require more of you so that you do reach sort of those 40 hours, would they do that or would they stick to what they're doing currently? I wonder. Yeah. And right. why? Because of the mental burden, like the exactly. trade-off between the mental the context burden. Switching? The oh, context switching? Context switching. Oh, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's an interesting. I'm I'm interested to know, you know, I think this is such a such a, a different side of the coin from the return to office debates. Yeah, yeah. That I am interested to follow the story long term because I've I've read about this basically since the pandemic started. Like mm-hmm. since we went to remote work, people have been pulling this like hustle. So, I'm interested in the long-term sustainability of it. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, we need to transition and talk about our good things for the week. So, yeah. let's do that. 
I'm just gonna start this section saying that was hilarious. The like, yeah, the like half-hearted <laughs> <laughs> celebration. That tells me all about where your oh, mental space is this goodness. week. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. what are you, what are you bringing to us? What 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 gave us the half-hearted uh, one good thing this week? <laughs> well, because my one good thing isn't exactly a good thing, but I think it could lead to good things. So work are with you me cheating? here. Are work you with cheating? Work with me here for a week? moment. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there was a report by the Surgeon General, U.S. Surgeon General, um, Doctor Vivek Murthy, that basically cited that there's a lot of risk of harm um, connected to social media and how it can harm children and as adolescents. And so they've been doing all of these studies on, you know, teenage social media usage and how there's a need for parents to control it a little bit more, perhaps even our government. But I, I don't know how that's going to go, especially with us following like this Montana TikTok ban story. Um, but I, I bring it to our attention because we're getting a lot more research on social media usage and the implications and how it affects mental health. And I think that is really important. I think we need to see that. Um, And I think we need more productive conversations or discourse around how this is affecting not only children and adolescents and teens, but also adults as well. Um, I myself over the past week have experienced harassment, trolling, bullying on YouTube because people didn't agree with what I shared. And, you know, just the impact that it's had on me as an adult, I'm like... I, it makes me think of all the stories I've heard about kids and, and teenagers who have been bullied. Um, yeah. And it, it, it really hurts my heart because you, you, your brain isn't even developed to process all of that um, yeah. at such a young age. And so I think I say this is my one good thing because I really, really hope that it just leads us to having more conversations and open discussions around the implications of social media and the harm. It's a good that thing in that it's shining a light on this yes, issue. Yes. What was new about the study? Because we've known this for a long time. Is it just that they they collected more data to kind of prove out yeah, what we've it, been talking about for years? Exactly. It's probably like one of the most comprehensive studies that we've had. And I think it's kind of aggregating all the various studies from like the, uh, the APA, American uh, Psychological Association, and um, all these other groups that are finally just kind of coming together to say like okay we've really got to do something um i think you know the high rates of self-elimination from kids is really Mm. stark now as well um and i think we're starting to see the connection between that social media usage and um again you know the decline in mental health so yeah I mean, I as a parent um, of, you know, kids who are growing older and getting more digitally plugged in and mm-hmm. starting to interact online, even in like games and game chat, you know, yeah. like not even Oof. not even social media, but just in other social forums. I am super protective of them. And to the point where they're they kind of roll their eyes and are like, yeah, oh, it's OK. <laughs> and I'm like, no, the Internet is terrible. Just assume everyone's a predator. Like, I'm yeah. just like, just I'm trying to like trying to teach them to be super cautious about any kind of kind of, you know, internet stranger as much as I can. But as they grow, you know, you've also got to kind of give them a little leash to experiment and try things themselves. And that makes me probably makes me more nervous than just about any digital thing they do. Yeah. And and now we have AI where it's like, you also have to be teaching them how to try to differentiate what's real or fake. Right. And I mean, most of us as adults, we're struggling to figure out what's real. 100%. Yeah. It's tough. Uh, Yeah. That's tough. Um, But good in that we need to keep talking about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Uh, my one good thing actually is related to AI. Okay. In that there is a delightfully quirky, weird, really fun show that just ended a run on Peacock called Mrs. Davis. Okay. You heard about this one? I have not. It's Tell a. Uh, <laughs> it's described as a sci- sci-fi comedy drama. So it's got a lot, lot mixed in there, and that you can tell in the tone of the show because it's all over the place. But it's so much fun. <laughs> Um, it's about an AI named Mrs. Davis. That's what the name is from. But it's this, like, algorithm that's been baked into basically, like, the entire world. And, yeah, exactly. So it's kind of, it's got this Big Brother-esque, um, feel to it. And the main character is, uh, Sister Simone is actually a nun who kind of, like, is is out for this AI to try to take it down. So you've got this nun versus AI essential dynamic, which is so so dumb and so much fun. Okay. Um, 
It was made by Damon Lindelof, which is, uh, uh, you know, also created Lost and mm-hmm. Watchmen and a bunch of other shows that I've really loved over the years. Okay. Um, and that's kind of what drew me to it. But it it's super fun. And so, again, just like off the wall, ridiculous. There's this whole like religious plot line, of course, because she's a nun. And okay. I don't know. It's eight episodes. Super fun. Check it out on Peacock. Sounds like something I need. I need a good feel good show. So I'll check it out. At one point, I, this is a true story. At one point, I think it was last week or the week before, I was experimenting with like chat GPT. I was mm-hmm. watching Mrs. Davis. I was talking to Pi, this new like AI app that was launched that's supposed to be like kind of therapeutic. Like it's just meant to be like someone to talk to, like a much more conversational. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Like yeah. I, ha- I was having AI integrated into my life at multiple points and I was like, okay. what is happening? So are we at that kind of turning point where a Mrs. Davis-like, uh, oh, you know, my goodness. <laughs> Mrs. Davis-like character is about to take over our lives? Who knows? It's possible. Anything is possible at this point. It is possible. Yep. So anyway, that that apocalyptic note was not the good thing. The good thing was <laughs> this is an entertaining show and go watch it because it's, it's super fun. Well... I think that's it for us this week. We are yeah. we are on debt ceiling watch, and oh, we, yes. will, we will see if by next week we are actually able to talk about a debt ceiling deal. I hope so, right? June 1st is the deadline, I think. That's what I'm hoping is going to be our good thing for next week, because if it's not, we're going to have some bigger issues. Fingers crossed. Thanks for listening to Leadership. Our producer is Dave Sandell. Thinking about starting your own podcast? Connect with him at davesandell.com. You can find more information about Caleb and his work and even hire him to speak on change leadership at calebgardner.com or 18coffees.com. And find his book, No Point B, Rules for Leading Change in the New Hyperconnected, Radically Conscious Economy, wherever books are sold. You can find more about me, Adrielle, and my diversity, equity, and inclusion work at adrielleparker.com. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash adrielleparker for more candid discussions on DEI and for more insight on inclusive leadership. <laughs>